G'day mate, 40 here. I'm a circular key. Oh man, I don't have this camera set up right, do I? Anyway, this is where all the ferries take off. And uh, just ahead of me is the Sydney Opera House. Good to be back in downtown Sydney. But uh, apparently it's got many of the same problems as uh, other big cities. Shock, surprise. So apparently even churches here having problems. Like they're getting derelicts here, even in Sydney. Like, nice church service, very posh people. And they'll have derelicts come in. Have drug addicts come in, disrupt services, rant and rave that oh, you guys are all posh, You're not real people, you don't know what's really going on. And uh, unlike synagogues, every synagogue in Sydney, to the best of my knowledge, has security. But uh, virtually none of the churches have security. And so they're going to have to wait until... You know, someone gets stabbed. Remember when I was growing up, that uh, my dad would often say that America, Australia is like 50 years behind America. So I hope when it comes to dysfunction in the big cities, that that's not true. So here's the Sydney Harbour Bridge behind me. That's where Paul Hogan used to work, mate. But eventually, if these derelicts keep coming into the churches here, like someone's going to get stabbed, someone's going to get hurt, and then churches are going to have to implement the same sort of security protocols that synagogues have. So every synagogue, to the best of my knowledge, in Sydney has security guards. I went to a Hanukkah event, there are at least four security guards. So, after 9-11, synagogues in Australia and Europe got really serious about security. Uh, more serious than in America. So, you go to a synagogue for the first time in Australia or in Europe, you, you have to reserve. Right? Send in you know, email, send in your information so they know who you are. Derelicts need being saved by God too. Derelicts should be able to worship. Yeah, but do they have to worship in your home? Do they have to worship? Do they have to worship in your particular church? Yeah, synagogues and Jews in general are very much into real politic. They're more interested in the, the real than the theory. So... Here's the lovely opera house. If I can just get out of the way. Oh man, doing a terrible job here. There we go. Not very good with my gimbal. It's a relatively new gimbal for me. But the advantage with this gimbal is that uh, at least I can put a sure mic on it. The church is not someone's personal home. Yeah, but the analogy, I think, still works. That 
you may want to help someone who's a street person or a derelict or an addict, that doesn't mean you want to invite them into your church. Right? There, there'd be all sorts of church philanthropic endeavors where they can get help. Right? It doesn't mean you have to invite them into the Kadosh Kadoshim, the Holy of Holies. So in, this, in the Holy Temple in ancient Judea, Right? There was a place for the Gentiles to go, and there was a place for all Israel to go. Then there are other areas where only priests and Levites could go. And then there was the Kadosh Kadosh in the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go on Yom Kippur. So, you don't have to allow everyone into everywhere. Right. Any decency, any civilization depends upon boundaries and borders and barriers and walls. So I was listening to Mark Brahman talking with uh, Richard Spencer and uh, Mark Brahman was saying, oh, Apollonians are good people. I can't believe I said it correctly, Apollonians are good people. But like everyone's, like your own group, yeah, they're more likely to be, to be good, to be your kind of people. But uh, when you're just talking about a rarefied sect, yeah, you're more likely to be at home with them. And so we're very quick to divide people into good and bad. But it's so situational, right? Someone could come on this live stream and be incredibly rude, and yet in their home life they might be wonderful, in their work life they might be wonderful. And uh, in certain situations they'll be strong and truthful and brave, and other situations they're going to be cowardly and, and rude and uh, antisocial. So these divisions of who's good and who's bad, so much depends upon situation, and yet news media often treats them as ineluctable qualities. Okay. Ah. Can't really give you a good look of the uh, the Sydney Opera House. Try another angle. So I think this finished about 1973 when I was still a school kid here in Australia. So I was listening to yeah, Mark Rahman talk with uh, Richard Spencer about the, the Apollonians, right? That's the, the new religion that they're developing because their political beliefs are socially unacceptable. So they're having to uh, develop a religion so that they can be more socially acceptable. So the type of people who are going to adopt Apollonianism are going to be quite limited. Okay, I really got to work on my my skills here. There's a bit of a glance at the Sydney Opera House behind me. 
I need to walk from downtown Sydney to Watson's Bay. works a little better. in their life they want perhaps more regulated speech and in other points of their life when they perhaps may lack power you know that they may they want you know more freedom of speech so it depends a lot about your life situation and what's in your individual interests and your group interests to determine you know how much freedom of speech you, you really want so Rich is talking about how dangerous free speech is. Yeah. You don't want to be on 4chan where there is endless scatological, fake misrepresentations, gross pornographic nonsense 24-7. You don't want to be there. And if that's all the movement is, if you're, if you're just this free speech warrior because you, you know, post porn and lie about people and drop the N-bomb or the K-word, whatever the hell, you know, I'm just kind of done at this point. So I think a lot of what accounts for Richard Spencer's trajectory is aesthetics, like you know, which groups are cool and which groups are uncool. And he got so much, so deep and so in depth with the own audience that he'd been cultivating that he, I think he just became revolted to the very core of his being. And that this is the primary reason why he switched his politics, right? For, for questions of aesthetics 
and personal comfort and uh, just feeling like, ah, oh, I cannot be associated with these people. I mean, free speech is, the ideal of free speech is based on a general level of good faith. You know, like, you're trying to contribute to discourse. And if you're not, you can get bent, in my view. You, you have, there, there has to be a basic assumption of good faith. You know, and you might very well be wrong. You might be really wrong. And it's a lot easier to have assumptions of good faith, right, if you share, say, the same religion or the same ethnicity, the more you have in common, not just ideology, but perhaps ties of blood or ties of faith or ties of national commitment, it's a lot easier to arrive at, at common ground of, of what constitutes good faith or not. Fine, but you are genuinely attempting to contribute to discourse, or otherwise free speech is meaningless. And, you know, and it can also have rather dangerous effects. Yes, of course free speech can be dangerous. I mean, Richard should know about that. He was instigating some bad hombres, right? He did so much damage to Donald Trump, and I've never heard Richard talk about that. I've heard it talk about the damage that Donald Trump did to him. Never hear Richard talk about the damage that he did to Donald Trump. And so it's very easy to think about, oh, you know, so-and-so screwed me, but uh, you know, what, about, what about the damage that you did to did to other people. So Australia has much more restrictive laws about uh, freedom of speech than, than America. free speech is dangerous, but uh, lack of free speech, right, may be even more dangerous. The Russia, Russia, Russia narrative might very well have been overstated by Rachel Maddow and those types of people that, you know, Trump is in control, the Kremlin's in control of America, it's overstated and it becomes ridiculous. Yes. There's no doubt that foreign actors are seeking or would like to seek to pollute the discourse and make our societies much worse in order to benefit theirs in the kind of zero-sum game, which in many ways, of geopolitics. So this is a real thing, and you don't have infinite rights as a user of the internet. Yeah, and I mean, also, uh, to be a bit of a, an optics cuck, which I think ultimately I am, <laughs> I'm thinking about it. I mean, it's not like, I think the problem with the optics was that, you know, ultimately, guys like Nick Fuentes were bad optics themselves, they Mark Brahman talking. Oh, welcome out of. Or in the DR, like, 
And um, so that's kind of an elevated. So those people who are kind of growing up those mobs, uh, those internet mobs, um, or you know, introducing people who are not really serious about politics. People create an audience. So you're probably responsible for a large and to degree of what kind of audience you attract. Okay. So I'm getting in the way of uh, Japanese tourist uh, photos. But yeah, of course, uh, free speech is dangerous, but uh, what's the alternative, all right? Lack of free speech is incredibly dangerous too. So Richard talks about, oh, free speech is dangerous, but think about the alternatives. Right? It's never just some you know, one, one direction question. Jews, 
or you know dropping in bombs here and there you know i can do you know there's nothing else to them there's there's this kind of you hit this wall with them where that is it and it becomes yeah you're going to get yourself banned and so in that to that extent the establishment hates you um but you're ultimately running up against this brick wall of defeatism and victimization you're martyring yourself for no real purpose um other than yelling at jewish journalists or calling out jews in the media or using foul language and making fun of blacks uh etc that that's ultimately useless at the end of the day you're you're ultimately you know particularly the calling out jews you're just basically establishing the fact that you are powerless and you're raging against them endlessly but that you know you're going to hit a brick wall of defeat and futility pretty quickly it is it's interesting so i think that there is a kind of mentality that um you know for example the racial slurs and the racial humor uh and the you know the, the racial caricature and this sort of thing um propagandists if you can call them that um, in the dr uh view these things as valuable because it's a way of uh, kind of drumming up the herd right it's, it's getting the mob uh it's drumming up the uh the internet mob with their uh, pitchforks and torches um uh, to uh you know basically engage in um uh virtual uh um pogroms, i guess right on twitter and i you know so i think that they they may see some of these things that um you know that you and i might be interested in kind of curtailing or limiting but would be would be sad if they disappeared uh, uh from social media or twitter Right, 40 here. Let's see if I can get my my gimbal working correctly. So we're just going to be overlooking the Sydney Opera House. It's great to be back home. I've lived 90% of my life in California. I lived nine of my first 11 years here in Sydney. Let's see. Okay, here we go. Most iconic side in Sydney. So Sydney is high in many types of diversity, but it's a type of diversity that seems to be working. So, not all diversity leads to high rates of crime. Right, plenty of forms of diversity 
can can work together, live together, socialize together without going at each other's throats. So it's like chemical compounds. Now some chemical compounds don't mix so well with other chemical compounds, at least at certain temperatures. Australia has fairly high rates of immigration, but it's all legal immigration. And they all have to meet certain standards, right? So it's an island, makes it harder for people to you know, retain their ties to their homeland and not learn English. Australia have race riots like 20 years ago. Yeah, they had them in Cronulla, right, against the Lebanese. And uh, a little bit of ugly tension there. But uh, that's, that's about it, right? Not a whole lot. Very low rates of crime. So what's going on with Deep Left Jokal? As he's fundraising, wants to create a community, right? Wants to make his ideas concrete. So he's developed quite a following. He went on a road trip visiting many of his most loyal viewers. So is Deep Left Jokal gonna buy a plot of land? It's going to set up a non-profit. Where is Deep Left Jokal headed? Kanye West, Candace Owens, Ben Shapiro, the ADL, Ali Alexander, G6 insurrectionist, and more. And I'm going to circle around the topic of Christian anti-Semitism. And by that, I mean... So, listening to Richard Spencer here talk about Christian anti-Semitism. So, anti-Semitism is a fancy name for anti-Jewish or Jewish critical. And it's not an essential quality, right? There's no essential quality to being Jewish or to being Christian, or to being white, or being black, or aborigine, right? Qualities manifest 
differently in different circumstances. Wow, look at that enormous ship coming into harbour. Wow. So I'm here at Sydney Harbour and you can just see the outlines of the Sydney Opera House there in the, in the distance. Okay, so just like it's Saudi money that's funding Elon Musk's free speech takeover of Twitter, right? So the Saudis are on the side of freedom, guys. Well, in this circumstance, they are. But in other circumstances, they're certainly on the side of repression. Right, so no group is eternally on the side of repression. No group is eternally on the side of freedom. No group is eternally on the side of God or on what's right or what's wrong. All right, the side we're on depends upon circumstance. Something very specific. So I, I'm, I'm sure that everyone listening to this has been exposed to what could probably be called most accurately casual anti-Semitism. Uh, these usually involve... And so a lot of what's called casual anti-Semitism or anti-Semitism is simply that people tend to dislike and fear, even hate those who are different from them. Right? Jews, just as high a proportion of Jews, have fear and hatred and negative feelings towards non-Jews, right? anti-Gentilism, as, as non-Jews have towards Jews. Right? We all tend to have negative feelings towards those who are different, uh, depending on the circumstance. Right, those feelings may be more or less intense, but uh, may absolutely have nothing to do whatsoever with the intrinsic qualities of whatever group or individuals we see representing a certain group. Involved Jews being good with money or tight with money or not great athletes or something like that. Um, I can remember when I was growing up, there was a joke of, uh, uh, how do you lose a Jewish cop? You take the toll road, you know, ba-doom crash. <laughs> um, the implication that Jews, you know, are very tight with money and wouldn't chase you down the toll road. Um, we only have so much time, so much energy, so much mental processing power. And so to reduce all these variables, we put people into groups, all right? We don't see people, generally speaking, who we don't know. We don't see strangers as individuals, see them as members of groups. And that's just how it is. And we tend to fear and loathe and dislike those who are different from us. Right? Everybody hates a stranger, says Mark Twain, and Jews are everywhere a stranger, even yeah, the angels. I mean, these, Hate in my strangers. mind, are the equivalent of, you know, funny jokes about Italians uh, or whatever, in the sense that they might be mean-spirited in some cases. Uh, they might also contain a kernel of truth, but at the end of the day, they're rather benign and maybe even rather meaningless. Uh, but Christian anti-Semitism is something different, and I do think it's something more profound. And uh, as I said on Twitter, um, I, I think there's a kind of of course it's going to be more profound because Christianity came from the Jews, all right? Why do people lose everything and get punished for expressing Jewish sentiment, but everything derogatory can be said about white people without penalty? Why is that? Because Jews, number one, are much more effective at organizing in their own interests. Wow, I was just talking to a family member and they talked about my chubby cheeks. When I went to synagogue here in Australia, they remembered me from a year ago and they said, wow, you put on weight. So, yeah, Jews are more effective at organizing in their own interests than white people are, right? That's, that's your answer right there, right? A lot, of, a lot of this organization requires discipline and expertise and funds and shaping of narratives. So some people are just more effective at shaping a narrative than other people. And a pathological ambivalence to it. Uh, there's inherent mixed feelings and contradiction.
to this. Well, of course, Christians are going to have mixed feelings about Jews and Judaism because Christianity emerged out of Judaism. Uh, Jesus was a Jew. He came first to the Jews to try to get them to accept his message, and they, of all the peoples in the world, have been the most resistant to the claims that uh, Christianity made for him. So, of course, there's going to be ambivalence. Christianity took on the Jewish scriptures. Though, of course, nobody believes that they're starting a new religion. Everybody just thinks that they're perfecting or fulfilling the existing religion. I mean, Muhammad had the same attitude towards Jews and Christians. And so, the Christian anti-Semite can say... And question from the chat, Joseph says, do Jews ally with blacks against white people? Well, sometimes, right? When Jews are part of the coalition of the fringe, because they fear the white Christian core, they might find some common interests with blacks, just like in other issues, uh, Jews and whites may find common interest in supporting stronger law enforcement. So... Generally speaking, politics in America revolves around a coalition of the fringe, right? Blacks, Jews, Latinos, Chinese, Japanese, homosexuals, kind of united against the white Christian core. And by and large, Jews like Asians have fit in with the, the coalition of the fringe. And the coalition of the fringe has almost nothing in common, right, except, you know, fear and loathing of the white Christian core. Hey, some rather harsh stuff. Kanye West has talked about people in the media and people he's had relationships with in the recording industry. So if you are Jew critical, you have to think that Kanye West would be your last choice as a spokesman, right? This is not a guy who tends to sound particularly rational or compelling. I, I, I would not want Kanye West articulating my point of view. I would not want Kanye West fighting for, for my people. I mean, I would cringe at that prospect. As basically being a bunch of bastards. He can say some harsh things. But at the end of the day, he I guess what's most telling about his anti-Semitism is that he considers himself to be a Jew. And by being a Christian with the blood of Christ, he is a Jew. So my father, the preacher man, he would always talk about how Christians are the real Jews. And uh, the Jews that we have today are not the, the real Jews. So many people who are anti the current crop of Jews still want to tie into the ancient lineage of, of Israel that, that goes back to the Hebrew Bible. So Kanye, my father, and uh, hundreds of millions of other Christians are in the same camp. Uh, so that kind of seeming contradiction, I think, gets at the heart of this deep ambivalence. We're all ambivalent and contradictory. Like, one day we hate our boss, the next day we love our boss. One day we hate our co-worker, the next day we love our co-worker. Like we're all filled with contradictory feelings and thoughts going in many different directions. We need a WASP or Anglo-Saxon organization for protection for our rights. If we don't have that, we're going to lose, says Joseph. Yeah, so you would think that would be the Anglican Church. Like, why doesn't the Anglican Church serve as an organizing principle, an organization for Anglos around the world. Why doesn't the Anglican Church unite the world's Anglo-Saxon tribes and uh, make them a coherent civilization once again, perhaps under the reign of a philosopher king like uh, King Charles? Will, will he do the trick? Jesus came to fulfill the laws of Moses. That is... Right, that's, that's a text in the Gospels. All right, so one text does not a... <laughs> does not a theological truth make, right? So Christianity quickly jettisoned most Torah laws. 
Now, Jesus was observant of Torah law, but Christianity has never been about observing you know, the ritual laws of the Torah, which are 95% of the laws of the Torah. Is the Pentateuch, or the uh, first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, he did not come to cancel the Jewish scriptures, even though he did uh, break some of the Jewish laws. Well, every new religion that comes along thinks that they're fulfilling the existing religion that they're a part of, so this isn't new or unique. In his uh, practice, and um, also is notable for stressing grace and forgiveness above adherence to laws. So there are plenty of segments and parts of Judaism that stress grace and forgiveness above you know, adherence to law. So that's not a unique, brand new insight from Jesus. So from my, my Jewish perspective, everything Jesus said that was true was not new, and everything he said that was new was not true. Jesus, even when he was raging against the Pharisees, even when he was seemingly contradicting Judaism, was ultimately a Jew and ultimately fulfilling. So Jews are known for verbal disputes, right? Jews are known for being a difficult and challenging people. So Jews are constantly disputing within, within each other, right? So Jesus was part of this intra-Jewish dialogue. And then from, from my perspective and from the a secular perspective on Christianity, then the Apostle Paul came along and had these visions and completely transformed Jesus into, you know, the Christ who is part of a triune Godhead, comes to earth to save people from sin, as long as they believe in him and partake in a you know, pseudo-cannibalistic ritual of drinking the blood and eating the flesh. Judaism, uh, very similar to Kanye, who in his anti-Semitic quote-unquote outburst is ultimately declaring himself to be a Jew and declaring... Yeah, if, if Kanye's outburst was anti-Semitic, then anti-Semitic is a pretty weak thing. All right? Kanye's outbursts were pretty weak tea. Right? They, they're not exactly you know, imperiling the lives of thousands of Jews around the world. Declaring Jews as, so to speak, pointing towards Christ... So this is the profound ambivalence that I think really should be taken seriously because you hear a lot of, you know, shrill shrieking in the media of, oh, you know, anti-Semitism is on the rise again. It's everywhere. And these mainstream figures like Kanye West. And how do you get, you know, statements like anti-Semitism is on the rise again? Because there's no objective definition of it. All right. Just the most normal human reactions to people who are different it suddenly gets classified as anti-Semitism. So how bad is the wind? How bad is the wind affecting the audio quality? Western Kyrie Irving are being anti-Semitic. What are we going to do? You know, next thing you know, uh, the Third Reich is going to come back again. Well, look, that's overstated to begin with. But again, I would stress that what we're seeing right now is not mere Jew hatred. It's something deeper and something more contradictory, and it is. So you don't hate those who you think are below you, right? You only hate those who threaten you. So people who don't have any interactions with Jews are much less likely to have negative feelings about them. So, for example, in Australia, you'll find the most concentrated anti-Jewish attitudes in Sydney and in Melbourne, where people are most likely to uh, where people are most likely to encounter Jews. So apparently, Richard Spencer's not coming across too is clearly. In the minds of the people saying these things, an attempt to redeem the Jews. So let me, let me look at this a little more specifically in this ADL Kanye West controversy that is happening. And All right, so why do Jews support uh, immigration? 
right, into majority white European countries, but protect Israel against this? Is this a divide and conquest plan and for Jewish interests? Well, the same Jews who oppose immigration into Israel, right, oppose immigration into America. So left-wing Ashkenazi Jews, right, they tend to be for, for open borders, whether it's for the Jewish state or for the American state or the Australian state. Uh, Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews and right-wing Jews tend to be opposed to immigration or open borders, you know, anywhere, including for the Jewish state. So blessings here to Elliot Blatt. The, the whole gang is here. And, and just a little Twitter and Telegram exchange that I think reveals all the fault lines in this uh, dialectic. Um, yeah, I, I recently was called out by the <laughs> chief of the ADL. Uh, I was connected with uh, Kanye West as spreading sludge on Twitter. So we'll see if uh, I'm a sacrificial lamb, as it were, uh, in Elon Musk stated attempt to protect free speech. Anyway, I hope I'm not. Um, but Max Blumenthal, I've known about Max Blumenthal for quite some time. I actually first encountered him, you know, a decade ago or more, when he was mostly targeting the religious right and conservatives. I remember some of these cringe compilation videos that he would make when he would go to CPAC and he would interview Christian nationalist or Christian Zionist and they would say things like, you know, we love Israel, they have our steadfast support and then he'd push them a little further and they would talk about the end times and, and it effectively... Um, I don't know how many it is, but, you know, 100,000 Jews. So uh, Max Blumenthal is an interesting character, right? He's a bloke of the left, but uh, he makes interesting videos. Uh, He raises, you know, provocative points. He deals with a lot of stuff that that the mainstream media doesn't want to deal with. So, you know, kudos to to Max for for the good work that he does. I'm not aware of everything he does, but... uh, certainly found those videos of his that I've paid attention to are thought-provoking. Converting to Christianity and the rest of them going up into flames, something like this. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I didn't really go in for his stuff, but there there was something uh, interesting about it. That's how I I learned about Max Blumenthal. Uh, Over the past say, four years, he's joined the Grey Zone, or perhaps a co-founder, editor of the Grey Zone, and uh, he's most notable for becoming a uh, Russian shill, which is a surprising choice, a surprising trajectory that I never would have guessed. Anyway, uh, he was saying something that was critical, but but also, you know, pretty true uh, about the situation of the ADL right now as being the anti-defamation league that is protecting Jews from... Uh, so, Russian shill, that's an interesting designation. So, you know, what makes a Russian shill? So often a Russian shill is simply someone who opposes the Biden administration's, you know, headlong rush into a massive conflict in Europe, risking nuclear exchange with Russia, risking World War III. So anyone who's critical of the tens of billions of dollars that we're funneling towards Ukraine, suddenly they become known as, as Russian shills. Right? It's just a, it's just a put down. Right? It doesn't it refer to some essential quality that uh, you're just always pro-Russia. Right? People are pro-Russia in certain contexts, particularly when they oppose the subsidizing and escalating of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Right? So plenty of people get called Russian shills you know, without, <laughs> without being Russian shills. They're simply opposed to heading into World War Three. They... They want to exercise some cognitive empathy towards uh, whatever Putin's doing. 
right? And so, like, Jewish shuls, Christian shuls, conservative shuls, right? They're often just, in a certain situation, they're standing up for a particular point of view or interest. It's not an eternal quality. It's not an essential quality. They're just, you know, always pro-Russian or pro-Jewish. Slander and libel and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we, this is, his, this is according to Max Blumenthal. We white American Jews are living through a golden age of power, affluency, or affluence and safety. Acceptance of this welcome reality threatens the entire Zionist enterprise. From- well, it's true that uh, American Jews are in a golden age. Right? Things are really good for Jews in America. It's, Jews are like the safest they've ever been. Now, that doesn't threaten the Zionist enterprise. The Zionist enterprise simply asserts that Jews, like every other people in the world, have a right to their own homeland where they can set the agenda, where they can have their own laws, where they can operate a culture and a civilization the way that they want to without the the veto power of of non-Jews. So why should Jews of all the people in the world not be allowed their own homeland? Unless you've got a good answer to that, then I don't see how you can be anti-Zionist. And Jewish success in America or in England or in Australia does nothing to threaten the Zionist enterprise. The Zionist enterprise is not primarily about finding and creating a safe space for Jews. That can be a side effect, that can be a blessing, but its primary mission is to simply normalize the Jewish experience. Yeah, I remember when George W. Bush referred to Putin as Pooty, but innocent times. And uh, also, the United States and, and Russia had more in common then. We had, we had common interests. Uh, Russia was a lot weaker. Uh, Russia's become much more formidable under Putin and therefore is more willing to assert its own interests. Also, the West has been steadily expanding NATO right up to the Russian border. Ukraine is de facto, right? This is, this is a lesson here for Sonia Sotomayor. Ukraine has become de facto, not de jure, a member of NATO. So de facto means not in law, but effectively. De jure means in law. And so Ukraine is not de jure a member of NATO, but it is de facto a member of NATO. And so that obviously threatens Russia's best interest. Why would it want a hostile organization on its doorstep? from lobby fronts like the ADL to the state of Israel. So Max Blumenthal is clearly anti-Zionist still, uh, because Zionism relies on Jewish insecurity to justify... So if you're left-wing, right, whether you're a left-wing Jew or a left-wing non-Jew, you're very likely to be anti-Zionist because Zionism is a form of ethnic nationalism. All right? If you're not down with ethnic nationalism, if you're a true man of the left who believes that uh, the most fundamental dividers between people are not race or ethnicity, but they are economics, then you're going to be anti-ethno-nationalism. So Joseph says that uh, European countries are being destroyed by multiculturalism. Well, your main argument is with your own people. Your own people have essentially signed on for the multicultural enterprise. And you have a few tribes around the world who are more resistant to the multicultural enterprise. So maybe there's something to to be learnt from Jewish nationalism and other types of nationalism and how can that be applied to European types of nationalism so that people can preserve their own cultures. Justify itself. 
Well, um, I think there is a uh, lot of truth to what he says. I, I think he's getting at a certain kind of ambivalence at the heart of the Zionist project, at least from... So I don't think that uh, Max Blumenthal is a self-hating Jew. I don't like that term. I don't use it. Right? Not a self-hating Jew if you're opposed to Zionism. Right? He's simply a true man of the left. He has left-wing values that are of greater importance to him than his ethnic values as a Jew. Right? So that doesn't make him self-hating, doesn't make him loathsome, doesn't make him a bad person. Right? He simply values other things more important than ethnic solidarity, ethnic unity, you know, group interests. Right? So plenty of left-wing Jews, if they are more left-wing than they're Jewish, then yeah, of course, they're going to be opposed to Zionism, which is another form of ethnic nationalism. A Jewish standpoint. Uh, and I, also from the Christian standpoint. Uh, I might want to go into this, actually. So, I mean, on the one hand, groups like the ADL want to fight anti-Semitism and call it out, apparently, with the intention that one day it will end. One day. So what does the Anti-Defamation League and uh, liberals in general have in common? What do they have in common? They're both on eternal missions to educate. So the right looks around, and the greatest threat that we see is disorder and contagion. But from a liberal and left-wing perspective, the greatest threat to our well-being is ignorance and attachments to traditional folkways and uh, not, not becoming modern and uh, rejecting the Enlightenment. Right? From, from a liberal perspective, the, those are the greatest threats. So also what, what motivates the Anti-Defamation League is uh, fundraising, power, influence. Right? Most people want more power rather than less. Most people would prefer more money rather than less. And so by agitating about anti-Semitism, the Anti-Defamation League gets to increase its own importance, it gets to increase its own fundraising, and it gets to give purpose and meaning to secular Jewish lives. So Orthodox Jews, by and large, don't care about anti-Semitism because there's no mitzvah in the Torah about combating anti-Semitism. Right? Orthodox Jews are so busy fulfilling the 613 commandments of the Torah they don't have time or interest, generally speaking, to fight against anti-Semitism. But if you're not living a life revolving around Torah observance, study of Torah, keeping the Sabbath, the kosher laws, laws of taharat, mishpacha, the laws of family purity, then you need something to fill up that emptiness beyond the pursuit of pleasure. Like, people want to feel significant, right? One of our deepest fears is feeling insignificant. And so when you attach yourself to a cause that you feel is eternal and transcendent, such as combating bigotry, then right, you've got significance. Everybody wants to feel significant. We all you know, sign on to various causes and ideologies and groups to keep those latent feelings of insignificance at bay. Some of us even make live streams. Uh, there will be no more anti-Semitism. Jews will be just like Presbyterians or Methodists. It will just be another religious denomination. And any criticism of Judaism itself will be much like a Presbyterian might criticize the Catholic dogma or something like that. Um, uh, maybe he doesn't even want that, but I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. But on the other hand, Zionism relies on anti-Semitism in a way for its justification. Now, this is not... Okay, that's not true. 
All right, Zionism simply means that Jews deserve a state just like any other people. That Jews deserve a place where they can develop their own civilization and culture without the non-Jews having veto power over them. Like, why would you deny Jews out of all the people in the world uh, the ability to uh, have their own state? What do I think will be the outcome of the Kanye thing? I think he's in a lot of trouble and uh, I don't see him coming back from this very effectively unless he does what, what Jews call tshuva, unless he makes them you know, dramatic you know, repentance. Yeah, we want to feel significant. We want to go where everyone knows our name and they're always glad we came. We want to know where people are. People are all the same. We want to go where everyone knows our name. So I don't see this ending well for Kanye West or Kyrie Irving or anyone who is saying publicly Jewish critical things. Because if you're a cele celebrity or you're a famous person in America, there's just going to be unbearable media and elite pressure against you if you're publicly saying anti-Jewish things. It's the third rail. It's the most hot-button issue because you have the most effective organized resistance against you. Completely accurate when you think about the history of Zionism in the state of Israel. But in terms of the way that it's legitimized, it's legitimized first as we're just a little democratic liberal state in the Middle East and we deserve your support, but also we are the last refuge for when anti-Semitism rears its head again. We are the one last escape from the next Hitler, and this is why Israel sh should always exist. So in that sense, it justifies itself on the existence of anti-Semitism. It needs that, it needs anti-Semitism. It needs even, you could say, and I think Max Blumenthal is saying this, a, a kind of um, schizophrenia on the part of Jews, that where they see... Okay, I think he's overstating it. Yeah, there are certainly lots of advantages to an in-group identity where you feel persecuted, where you can kind of team up and unite around your fear and loathing of the outsider. Right, that's good for any in-group identity. If it's paranoia, right, if it's completely detached from reality, then that comes with an enormous price as well. So I don't think Jewish existence or the existence of the Jewish state depends upon whipping up paranoia about how, you know, the Cossacks are coming to get you. See anti-Semitism everywhere. After all, more anti-Semitism, more justification for Israel. That's what I think Blumenthal is getting at. Um, I don't know if Candace is getting at this. Um, and she affirmatively retweets Max Blumenthal, says, you are about to get into a lot of trouble for stating this. Reminds me of when I said something similar about the NAACP and BLM way back when. When you dis uh, disrupt the trauma economy and call out the not-for-profits that benefit from it, you become their next target. Uh, I, I would um, give Candace some credit for this. Uh, and I think, you know, if we're to be charitable to Kanye West, that is, try to represent what he's saying in the best possible light and not just, you know, focus on the kind of contradictions and strangeness. Uh, so trauma economy, that's that's brand new. I don't think we had such a thing as the trauma economy 50, 60, 70 years ago. Right now it's become a big thing where you know, trauma becomes a whole economy. It's a whole new concept. It's like in the traditional you know, Jewish outlook, that there's no such you know, category as, as trauma, right? For example, if you were molested, right, it wasn't, it wasn't expected to be something that would forever ruin your life, right? So trauma comes from the, the secular worldview, where, where psychology has more importance, right? It's the importation of, of non-Jewish values. 
really don't understand what Kyrie did that was so bad. All he did was post a link to a book that Amazon hosts, right? It's still up. People are watching and buying the documentary and the book. So, yeah, it strikes me as a huge overreaction. But Kyrie Irving, I just saw a remark from a journalist that Kyrie Irving was one of his five least favorite people in the NBA. I don't think Kyrie Irving's made a lot of friends in the news media, right? He, he's not someone that journalists like. And so I think part of the piling on against Kyrie Irving is that journalists just don't like this guy. And so journalists will give a lot of slack to people that they like, but they're, they're very happy to pile on to people that they, they don't like. And I think a lot of this piling on against Kyrie Irving just simply means journalists don't like this guy. All right? He's not very popular. He hasn't made many friends among the journos. And so they're happy to see him go down. Also, there's probably resentment that, you know, this guy's making $30 million a year. And there's also probably a lot of journalist resentment that uh, Kyrie Irving refused to get vaccinated. And so sports journalists, more so than other journalists, tend to uniformly be on the left. So north of 95% of sports journalists are on the left. So they're particularly dedicated to denying you know, human biodiversity. They have a very strong left-wing agenda. And I think they just welcome this opportunity to pile on to Kyrie Irving. Yeah, all he did was you know, tweet to a documentary that Amazon hosts. You'd think, like, why is that such a big deal? And so I think part of it's just overreaction. Part of it is people just don't like Kyrie Irving. And I think a normal person seeing all the pylon against Kyrie is going to think, yeah, I feel sorry for this guy. Like, what did he do that was so wrong? He just posted one link to, to a documentary that's good enough to be on Amazon. Uh, I do hear a lot of this. In that interview with Lex Friedman, I actually listened to a little bit more of it last night uh, while I was going to bed, but Kanye was saying, you know, um, they create trauma. And so Disney creates trauma, even with a movie like Bambi, where Bambi's mom died. Oh, I remember seeing that in the theaters and crying, uh, <laughs> crying my eyes out. Um, uh, and, and what he's saying is that they almost need to traumatize you in order to uh, fleece you, you could say. Uh, they, they place this trauma in your mind very early on, and then you kind of need to keep coming back to them. Now, maybe that's kind of taking it a bit too far, at least in the case of Bambi. But maybe it's not taking it too far in the case of BLM, that there needs to be this suggestion of widespread, rampant, vindictive, immoral attacks on the black race. So, yeah, I think there's something to that that any group can ramp up its trauma story and particularly if it's good at crafting narratives if it has a larger role than average in culture it can really light up the trauma narratives and and eventually outsiders start to resent it right people don't want to be manipulated so that's the Sydney Harbour Bridge in the background. That's the Sydney Opera House. Why do Gentiles and others have to bow to Jews in their groups? Never see Jews bowing to any other group of people. We all bow to those who are more powerful than us. So Jews haven't always been powerful. When Jews lacked power and influence, then I assure you Gentiles were not bowing to them. Right now, Jews are disproportionately, compared to their numbers, successful in the United States, Australia, and Europe. And the natural human tendency is to bow towards people who are more successful than you are and to expect other people to bow to you when you achieve great levels of success. All right, we all tend to 
be nice and respectful and to concede to those who are more powerful than us. So think, you, think you're walking down the street and there's just a narrow path and one person is going to have to give way to the other person. Right? The person who looks bigger and stronger, more formidable and more scary, right? he is much more likely to be acceded to. People are much more likely to you know, effectively give him the right of way. And so groups that are highly effective at organizing and punishing their enemies, all right, and who had disproportionate influence on in the high grounds of culture, such as in the academy, in the profession, such as the legal profession, accounting, dentistry, medicine, law, right, groups with tremendous power and the ability to organize and to punish their enemies, all right, they're going to naturally find outside groups learning from them and frequently deferring to them right so just like hypocrisy is the obeisance that vice pays to virtue bowing is the obeisance that the less powerful pay to the more powerful that's just the way the world works i'm coming back here a hundred times if i have to we win they lose that's how the world works race in America by the police in order it creates generates this trauma or emphasizes things way out of proportion in order to fleece you get your donations and so on you know um I, I think there's a lot of truth to that actually um but what I want to get at is um this is uh this is a response to all this stuff um by uh, Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro responded to Candace Owens, and he says, I think the ADL is a partisan hack organization, too. But RTing Max Blumenthal, who spends his life covering for Jew haters and stumping for Israel's destruction, makes the conversation significantly worse. It's garbage. So he is, Ben Shapiro is publicly calling out Candace. And he's done this a few times. He has publicly called out Candace, almost pretending like he doesn't work with her. <laughs> he couldn't just, you know, DM her or um, at the Daily Wire walk across. Right, they both work together at the Daily Wire. So why do many right-wing Jews regard the Anti-Defamation League as no good? Because the Anti-Defamation League doesn't just fight ethnic defamation, they also have very much a left-wing agenda. But they never pose it as a left-wing agenda, just like liberals and leftists in general. Right? They don't pose as having an agenda. Right? They pose as simply being objective seekers of truth. Right? This is just what's objectively true. This is just what happens when you see the world openly and honestly and you let go of your traditional prejudices and folk ways and your traditional medieval ways of thinking. So when you develop the modern notion of a buffered, autonomous, strategic, rational self who can make decisions and uh, pursue rational ends and has you know natural inclinations towards goodness right you just take that as you know the only enlightened way to be and anyone who opposes that well they they must be primitives and so liberals by and large don't believe that they're liberals that they're just another group of partisans right liberals you know by and large think they're objective truth seekers that they're the rational ones that they are the, the products of enlightenment and the rest of it just simply haven't caught up to their higher stakes. ...across the room and talk to her about these things. He needs to kind of signal about this and rip, uh, misrepresent Blumenthal. I'm no fan of Max Blumenthal overall, but I don't think he's a genocidal maniac. Uh, interesting. Uh, so this goes a little further. So Canvas responded to that. 
And um, someone sent me this from Telegram. So Ali Alexander is a really strange and, you could say, disreputable figure. Um, I won't go into some of the rather horrifying rumors. They are rumors, I would say, but they seem to have some basis uh, involving Karl Rove and so on. Uh, Google it if you must. Um, <laughs> he, he has been, I believe, convicted of a felony car theft or something like this. Uh, you know, it's rather bad. Uh, then again, um, if you know people turn their life around, if they do the crime and serve their time, they can re-enter society, and that's the way it should be. But yeah, still, there's a little whiff of uh, being disreputable about him, and um, also just being simply a grifter. He benefited immensely from, no doubt, from the Stop the Steal movement. He was taking donations. He was out in front. Um, he is a behind-the-scenes operative, and after January 6th, so there's a huge amount of pressure on him, he was pretty much going nuts. He's also been interviewed by the J6 committee. He, he's in the kind of mid-range of J6. So the, the, there's the low-hanging fruit, that is the people who invaded the Capitol and you know did all sorts of things. There's the high-hanging fruit, the Donald Trumps of the world who kind of, you know, on, you know, on whose behalf this whole movement was based, but also someone who spurred it on and gave big speeches and promised to walk arm-in-arm with his uh, comrades to the Capitol. And then there's the kind of mid-range, and that's where Ali Alexander is. He's kind of grifting off it. He's talking to congressmen, according to his own account. He's working with, you know, women for America first and this kind of stuff uh, who um, were renting places where these rallies took place. He, he is a mover and shaker, the one that, who's behind the scenes and not really a household name, like, say, Donald Trump or, like, the uh, QAnon shaman. Uh, I don't believe he himself entered the Capitol, but he certainly uh, greased the wheels. Uh, and he is, he is also a, a very public Christian now um, and all this kind of stuff. So our girl Candace Owens is, according to Ali, calling out her boss's ethnic victimhood theater tantrum. And he goes on. So, yeah, a lot of these people like Ali Alexander, Nick Fuentes, wrap themselves in Christianity. But you don't actually notice much that's particularly Christian in the way they live. So someone who's authentically Christian, they're going to have to sacrifice for their Christianity. Right? It's going to shape their life is going to change the way they speak it's going to limit the things that they can do and so i think many people found it was disreputable to be alt-right or to be an ethnic nationalist or to be a magatard and they're now you know wrapping themselves in in christianity as a more socially acceptable vehicle for their values and their values are simply you know every organism wants to create an environment where it is best suited for thriving. Now, we, we develop ideologies on top of that about why the type of environment we seek is you know, the best environment for all people, but it's very rare that anyone develops an ideology that is opposed to their self-interest. Right? Ideologies are simply extensions of our evolutionary makeup where we try to recreate a world around us that is best suited for our own thriving. And then sometimes you may think the path to do that is through ethnic nationalism. Other times you say, oh, the best path to do this is through Christianity. And I'm in uh, botanical gardens right now. So the ideologies may change, but what it comes down to is we all want to thrive. We all want to prosper. We all want more power rather than less. We all want more autonomy rather than less, right? We all want more safety rather than less. And so we may switch between various ideologies depending on how effective they are at promoting the world that we want within a certain situation. So looking out at the Sydney Harbour Bridge, looking out, you can see the Sydney Opera House in the distance. 
as I sit here in the botanical gardens 